Hey, Zio family and friends and everyone who's listening to this podcast, it's great to be able to get this time with you and uh, thinking of you as we head into week eight of this massive global interrupt moment. And what we're doing each week is we're taking some time to look at some of the stories from the Bible where God interrupted people, stopped them in their tracks, did something to get their attention. Because do you know, God is always trying to get our attention. He's always trying to nudge us and remind us that he's there, that he's at work. And he's inviting us not just to try to notice, but to join in with the good thing that he's doing, even in the midst of the storms that we're experiencing. And so in this podcast, I want to look at one of Jesus' most provocative and powerful interrupt moments, a moment that was so significant and impactful that it basically it signed his death warrant, and within a week he was crucified. This moment was the final straw for the authorities. So what am I talking about, and why was it so important, and is it so important to us right now? Well, I'll come to that in a minute. I just wonder what you've been doing in lockdown. Uh, One of the things that Amy and I have been enjoying is good action movies. We love a good action movie, particularly a good superhero action movie, movie, particularly a good Marvel superhero action movie. In fact, we've watched quite a few during lockdown. And one of my favourite Marvel superheroes is the Hulk. I love the Hulk. What's not to love, after all, about a huge, green, muscly beast with anger management issues? Um, Well, actually, if you put it like that, there's probably quite a lot not to love. But you definitely don't want to get on the wrong side of the Hulk when he's angry. After all, you probably know if you've been around a while that the Hulk has an alter ego, Bruce Banner, who famously often reminds people, don't make me angry. You wouldn't like me when I'm angry. You know, a lot of the time when people think about Jesus, the very last word that people would use to describe him is angry. And in a sense, that's right. In Jesus, we see the God who is loving and compassionate, kind, generous, gentle, faithful. You can fill in a long list of the blanks. But the truth is there were times when Jesus got angry. And I mean, like really angry. Like once he stood at the tomb side of a close friend who died. And we're told that Jesus weeps and he's angry because he hates death. Jesus is the God who brings life. There's another story where... Jesus gets really mad at his disciples when they turn away a bunch of parents who simply would love Jesus to pray a blessing over their kids. And then there's one more time he gets mad. So he doesn't get mad much, but on this third occasion, he like gets like really mad, more mad than we've ever seen him. And as we're about to see, it's, it's a massive impact interrupt moment. And the story is found in all four of the Gospels, and it takes place just moments after Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Thousands and thousands of people lining the streets to welcome him, waving palm branches. They're inviting him to their sacred city because they believe that he just might be their Messiah, the hope for their world. The one they think who's going to sort out the Roman enemy and bring some much needed freedom. And as Jesus walks across the threshold of the city through the Golden Gate, they're fully expecting him to make a beeline for Herod's palace and challenge the established authorities. But to their surprise, like Jesus turns towards their temple. Now, the Jewish temple was a place that symbolized the presence of God amongst his people, the place where people could find forgiveness and blessing from God. But sadly, it had become like some huge exclusion zone. 
kind of ironic really that the place that was supposed to be a space where anyone, whoever they were, whatever they'd done, could come and connect with God had become the very opposite. It was almost like a massive filtration system, more focused on keeping people out than welcoming and inviting people in. It actually repelled people rather than attracted people, although people longed for what it should have been. Let me explain a little why. If you imagine like a center box, and in that box the word the chief priests, that's the Holy of Holies, one space right in the middle of the temple uh, that was separated off, and the chief priests could only, only ever go into the most holy of holies once a year. Now put another box around that, and then mark that the place of the priests. This is the main sanctuary, and only the priests could go into that space. Now put another box around that and label that the court of Israel. This was the place that only Jewish men were allowed to go into. And then if you put a box around that, you'd have the women's court. It was the place where only Jewish women and children were able to go, but they, they couldn't go any further. They obviously couldn't go into the space where the Jewish men could go. And by the way, if you were in any way sick or disabled, regardless of whether you were male or female, then you weren't even allowed in the women's court. And if you were considered to be an outcast or a sinner, like a prostitute or a tax collector, like you couldn't get anywhere near this. And so the exclusions go on and on. And then if you put a box around that, then you come to what was called the court of the Gentiles, which is basically anyone who's not a Jew, like me, I'm not a Jew, I'm a Gentile. And so this was a massive space, a big area around the temple uh, that obviously Gentiles were allowed to be in. But it's in the court of the Gentiles that all the money changes and the market stores resided. And so if a Jew or a Gentile had traveled a long distance to offer a sacrifice in the temple, they probably wouldn't want to bring an animal all that way. So instead, they would buy their sacrifice, which could be a bird or a goat or something, in this area. But the problem is they couldn't just buy it with Roman coinage because the Jews wanted nothing to do with the Romans. And so first you had to exchange your Roman coins, your Roman shekels, for special temple currency, which was called Tyrian shekels. And even if you did bring your own animals for sacrifice, then you still had to pay a temple tax, which again could only be paid in Tyrian shekels. So the court of the Gentiles had become this huge chamber of commerce with money and animals changing hands and chaos reigning. And yet this area was the only place that the Gentiles could come and worship God. But of course it was impossible to worship in this place because it was a big marketplace full of noise and sheeps barring and goats goating or whatever they do. So the irony of all this is that right at the very birth of the Jewish nation, like over a thousand years previous, God speaks to the father of the Jewish people, a guy called Abraham. And we see this first in Genesis 15. And, and God told Abraham that his descendants were going to be blessed by God. And they were not to hoard that blessing for themselves. They weren't to keep that blessing for themselves. They needed to be a blessing to others. They were blessed to be a blessing. And yet here we are now in this scene. And over a thousand years later, Jesus looks around the temple, which is supposed to be a place of blessing and forgiveness. And it's entirely the opposite. And so Jesus is absolutely raging. And he's got three issues. Issue number one, that the people who needed God the most, the lost, the outsiders, the broken, the sick, they couldn't even get close. They were literally physically barred. It was impossible for some people to worship God and receive his forgiveness. Secondly, if they could get close, then they'd be ripped off by this temple money-making market. 
So the priests who should be concerned about bringing God's forgiveness to the masses were far more concerned about bringing masses of money into their pockets. The temple had become a place of corruption and robbery and, and con artistry. And thirdly, the greatest issue of all is that they'd even put a price on forgiveness because God's forgiveness was supposed to be free for all. So what does Jesus do in this interrupt moment? Well, in Matthew's account of the story, Matthew 21, verse 12, we're told, Jesus entered the temple courts and he drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. So Jesus walks into the temple courts and in righteous and thoroughly justified anger, he literally turns over the tables, sending corrupt money flying. He forcibly grabs these rip-off merchants and kicks them out of the temple. Literally that word that says drove in the original Greek language means he grabbed them. He almost violently pushed them out. It's absolute carnage, like no one's seen anything like this. And in that moment, the whole corrupt temple system comes to a halt interrupted. And then Jesus shouts with the passion of heaven, it is written, he said to them, verse 13, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. When Jesus says this, he's most likely referring to two passages of scripture in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56 verse 7, which speaks about the fact that the house of God should be a place of prayer for everybody, for all nations, for all people, Jew and Gentile. And then in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 6 to 11, God speaks about the corruption of the temple back then in Jeremiah's day, and he calls it out as a den of thieves, just about money. So Jesus is being unequivocally clear that this place is for everyone. God is for everyone. God wants to forgive and bring freedom and blessing to everyone. And he's like, don't put up fences and barriers and problems that prevent people getting to God. But that was the problem. The temple system was more committed to structure than to serving, more committed to policy than to people. The temple had become institutionalized. Like the leaders had forgotten the whole purpose of why it existed, to be a place of hope and help and healing for everybody. But in this great interruption moment, all of that changes in an instant. In fact, in Matthew 21, verse 14, Matthew captures what happens next. It's a beautiful thing, not mentioned in the other Gospels. He says, and the blind and the lame came to Jesus at the temple and he healed them all. Now, just think about that. Those who were never allowed in before, those who had been excluded, stepped into the temple courts for the first time and they found Jesus. And in Jesus, they found healing. In fact, the word for healing used here in the original language of the New Testament literally means to serve, to heal, and to restore. Like Jesus did for them what no one else was prepared to do. And what, in a sense, only he could do. He served them, he healed them, and he restored them because he is God in human form. Like this is wonderful, it's beautiful, it's breathtaking. Jesus again and again changing lives, reaching the hurting and the broken, which he still does today. But before we get to the main three points I want to draw out of this, there's this tragic next line, verse 15, and it says this. When the chief priests and teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Now they're raging. Like, what's that about? 
when the temple leaders saw the wonderful, miraculous healing that Jesus did, when they heard the joy and celebration of children, they became mad, mad as heck. See, the temple leaders are mad because Jesus has interrupted their systems and policies, their traditions and practices. He's messed with their institution. And they're more upset about that than the fact that people have been healed and there's joy in their house for the first time in a very long time. It's so sad. And as a result, because Jesus has turned the status quo upside down, we discover later that they finalize their plot to have him executed. It's an amazing story. But what's it got to say to us today? Well, three things. Firstly, it tells us about God's relentless rescue. God is passionate about people. He'll do whatever it takes to ensure that people can connect with him. This story tells us that Jesus is a God of compassion, a righteous God who rages against injustice and is committed to bring life and restoration to people's lives. He's a God who fights for people a God who's committed to put the wrong things right in the world. In fact, Jesus' death and resurrection, which is a mere week away from this event, would put an end to this corrupt temple system once and for all. No more need for temple sacrifices, because Jesus' death was the ultimate and definitive sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. On the cross, God sacrifices himself to face the full force of the consequences of our rejection of God and his way of life. There'll be no more need for temple priests because Jesus has become our great high priest, offering each of us forgiveness and a reconciled new life with God. And so there'll be no more need for temples because the resurrected Jesus is now more committed to fill people with his presence and power than places and buildings. God's relentless rescue. God is passionate about people. He'll do anything to reach them. Like he loves people more than he loved his own life. And he's particularly attracted to broken people who are humble enough to know that they need him. From Genesis to Revelation, we see time and time again a God who sides with the poor, the oppressed, the excluded, the diseased, the disabled, the orphan, the widow, the outcast, the lost, the without hope. The psalmist in Psalm 146, 7 to 8 says, God gives justice to the oppressed and food to the hungry. The Lord frees the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind, lifts up those who are weighed down. The Lord loves the godly. The Lord protects the foreigners amongst us. He cares for the orphans and widows, but he frustrates the plan of the wicked. You know, some people have said in this current climate, that COVID-19 is a great leveler, that whether you're rich or poor, we're all susceptible to this disease. And of course, that's true. We are all susceptible, but that's not in any way the whole story. We might all be in the same storm, but we're definitely not all in the same boat. And those locked in poverty and challenging life circumstances are far more likely to be vulnerable to both physical and mental illness. Like, I'm so incredibly aware right now that I'm not worried about my next meal, about paying the bills, about having a roof over my head. And yet, right now, not just around the world, but in our community, there are families who are grappling with those basic challenges, whose cupboards are empty of food, who are fearful about paying a bill, who are worried if they're going to lose their house, who don't even have a house. And that breaks the heart of God. God passionately cares about that. And if right now that's your reality, if you're feeling lost and alone or afraid or hopeless or anxious, 
or you're in debt or in trouble in any way, then I want you to know that God cares deeply about you and your situation. You matter to him. Your well-being matters to him. Every part of your life matters to him. And he'll do whatever he can to save you, heal you and restore you. Firstly, this story tells us about God's relentless rescue, to rescue people whatever it takes. Nobody is beyond the reach of his love and power. But secondly, this story tells us something about our revolutionary responsibility, our responsibility in moments like this. You see, we are all, each of us, over seven billion of us, invited to become followers of Jesus, to receive restored relationship with God, healing, forgiveness, a new start, and then to be a channel of that good news to other people. We are invited by God to be a help, not a hindrance to his plans to bring rescue to others. One of the names the Bible uses to describe the church is the body of Christ. Together we are called to be and do the kind of things that Jesus would do if he was physically and bodily present in the earth today. We're called to be the body of Christ in our neighborhood, in our community, in our workplace. We're called to be other-centered, compassion-centered, justice-centered, generosity-centered, restoration-centered people. And that responsibility is revolutionary in a me-self-centered self-centered consumeristic culture. See, we're not supposed to be people who are just grateful that we are okay, but people who are committed to help others be okay and to be more than just okay. We want to see people emotionally, physically, financially, relationally, and spiritually whole and healthy because that is what Jesus has relentlessly rescued people for. In Psalm 82, verse 3 to 4, the, the songwriter says, Give justice to the poor and the orphan. Uphold the rights of the oppressed and the destitute. Rescue the poor and the helpless. Deliver them from the grasp of evil people. Maybe our daily prayer should be something like this. Jesus, with all that's going on around me right now, with all the people who are struggling and hurting, what would you say and what would you do if you were me with the resources that I have? And then help me to have the courage and the commitment to do that with your power at work in me. Help me to join in with what you are doing and what you want me to do to serve, to heal and to restore people. And as you do that, you should expect that God will every day nudge you, nudge us, direct us, lead us, challenge us to do something, to do anything, to say something, to sacrifice for the sake of other people. And remember that God is more committed to live in people than places now. And so the Apostle Paul tells us that if we're followers of Jesus, then we individually are now temples of the Holy Spirit. God resides in us, but he's longing for his presence and power to burst out of us to bless and serve other people through the work of our hands and the encouragement of our words. Let's be a temple that attracts people towards God by the way we behave. Rather than, rather than repels them for God. So this story reminds us of God's relentless rescue, that he'll do whatever it takes to rescue people. And it reminds us of our revolutionary, revolutionary responsibility, that in the light of God's relentless rescue, we are invited to be part of that, to join him in serving and healing and restoring others. And then thirdly and finally, this story should provoke us as a church and the church all across the world. The church's rigorous 
refinement, the rigorous refining in a moment like this. See, I believe, as I know many people do, that God is shaking his church across the world right now. Like everything's been turned upside down. And whilst I'm not saying that Jesus is raging mad with his church, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus is challenging his church to keep the main thing the main thing. Like, I wonder if we've lost sight of that. Maybe we need to allow this story to interrupt us in this moment and ask ourselves, have structures become more important than serving? Policies more important than people? Have we bought into consuming church rather than be consumed by God? Has Jesus' church become institutionalized? Are we precious about the right things? Have we forgotten what the simple, beautiful purpose of the church is, which is to be the family of God on the mission of God? That we're not supposed to be a holy, happy, clappy huddle of people just looking out for each other and caring for each other, but we are called to be the light of the world, to seek and so save those who are lost, to bring the good news of Jesus to a broken and hurting world, whatever it takes, whatever it costs. Like, you don't need me to tell you, friends. Like, we know that as a result of COVID, like, everything's changed. But it's still possible for us to totally miss this moment and end up going back to business as usual. Like, 2,000 years ago, even after everything that Jesus had done, the temple continued to operate. Even though God had essentially left the building and broken out, the curtain that had been torn from top to bottom in the moment of Jesus' death was replaced with a new curtain and the temple leaders just went back to their old ways. It's so easy to do, to go back to what we know, to what feels safe. But that's not what this moment is about. Let's not repair the curtain. Let's not put up the upturned tables back in their place and return to what we knew. I've got no idea what the church is going to look like in the future, but I do know that Jesus is inviting us into something new. Maybe he's inviting us to return to something that's been lost. It's time for God's rigorous refining of his church. And that's what we're praying for, listening for, longing for. Let's bravely and courageously invite Jesus by his spirit to lead us into something new and fresh and scary and risky and wonderful and breathtaking. Something that will result in what God wants to happen, which is thousands upon millions upon billions of people being rescued by him and restored to him for now and all time. You know, in the Second World War in France, a Scottish preacher and theologian called William Barclay was with his patrol. And, uh, and as they were starting to kind of head back, they were caught in a little battle and their captain was shot and killed. And they wanted to give him a proper burial. And so the first church they found, they went and asked the priest if they could bury their friend in the graveyard by the church. Now the priest asked if the captain was Catholic, <coughs> but he wasn't. And so the priest said, unfortunately, the man could not be buried because it was a Catholic church. Now you can understand that the, um, the soldiers were really unhappy about this. And so the priest thought that he compromised and said that they could bury their captain just outside the fence of the cemetery. And he would personally see to it that the grave was looked after, and so that's what they agreed. Uh, then they left, um, stayed the night somewhere, and decided that they'd come and put some flowers by the grave before they returned, and so they popped back to the church. But they couldn't find the grave anywhere. 
And so they go and find the priest. And as you imagine, they're confused and they're a little bit angry. And... But the priest stops them and just says, I'm so glad you're here. Let me tell you what happened last night. I just couldn't sleep. I kept thinking of your friend and his grave resting outside the fence. And so in the middle of the night, I got up and I moved the fence so that he could be inside. You know, that's a great story. And if we left it there, I could just make a point and say that Jesus came to move the fence so that those who have been excluded can come to him. And there's some truth in that. But Jesus didn't come to move the fence. He came to rip the fence up and burn it up and get rid of it so that there was absolutely no barrier for anyone to come to him. You know, I wonder what the barriers or the fences are that Jesus needs to rip up in our lives because they're preventing people receiving God's restoration and healing and hope. Maybe it's the barrier of selfishness or self-centeredness or laziness. Maybe it's the barrier of prejudice or self-righteousness or judgmentalism. Maybe it's the barrier of busyness or the fence of religion or pride or even tradition and nostalgia where we've just like always done it this way. God, would you show us what are the fences and barriers and structures that are in our lives and in our church that are stopping people coming to you? This is an amazing story, an amazing interrupt moment. God's relentless rescue. God will do whatever it takes to save people. It's a story about our revolutionary responsibility that God invites us to play our part in his relentless rescue, to be a help, not a hindrance, to serve, heal and restore people into relationship with him. And as we all do that, it's a pause moment for some rigorous refining of the church, where we say, God, in this new reality, how should we be? What must we say? What must we do? What are you calling us to stop doing, to start doing, to do more of that we're already doing? God, would you lead us? God, would you direct us? As you listen to this now, maybe you're someone who wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus. And as you've heard that God would do anything to save you, even die for you, this is your moment to humbly admit that you need him. That you want to say, God, I'm, I'm sorry that I rejected you and refused to live your life. Thank you that you love me so much you died for me and rose for me. I receive your forgiveness and a restored relationship with you. And now help me to live each day the rest of my life with you and for you and joining in with what you're doing, rescuing people from darkness and death and hopelessness. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus, but you've got into religion. And now is a moment to say, God, would you forgive me? I repent, I'm sorry. Would you recommission me again to what you've called me to do, to join with you in the world? I invite you to chew over this word, to ask God to speak to you through it and to make a decision to act upon it. The Jesus who interrupts us for our good, for the good of the world and for his amazing glory. God bless you.